in song. Ever think of those words? Learn to wonder, Lord, how I feel it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Lord, for the people that you love. Lord, I just pray this morning that we just share from your word that you would challenge our hearts to glimpse who you are, how much you love us. You love us beyond anything we will ever fully understand or comprehend on this side of glory. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I am not doing the Ninth Commandment, so if you expect me to do the Ninth Commandment this morning, I'm not doing it. Um, we, Pastor Tim will be doing the Ninth Commandment two weeks from the day after we go to Shrin's building next week. So we kind of felt like we would, uh, we want to kind of put everything into the Easter element at this point in time. So this morning we're going to do a little bit of uh, preface work toward the uh, toward the resurrection on Sunday, or next Sunday. But I I just want to share with you, ask you the question: Have you ever felt shame? Do you ever walk into a room and hear people laughing, and begin to think that they're laughing at you? Do you ever begin, you, you see people laughing, and you begin to look at your clothes, you begin to look at yourself, and you begin to think, you know, what am I doing? Do you ever tell someone how long you've been married, and then you see them computing how old your oldest child is? <laughs> Do you ever have to explain that you don't know who your father or your mother is? Have you ever been teased mercilessly about a defect of yours or maybe a mistake that you made? You are mortified about a bodily fluid accident and everyone jumps on the bandwagon and nobody lets you forget it. Have you ever been made fun of? You walk into a room and are so teased by the clothes that you wear or your hairstyle, you vow in your heart never to look like this again. Have you ever been teased because of your last name, your nose, your complexion, your skin color? Do you know the feeling of, I just appreciated her testimony singing just now. I just want to leave here and go someplace and hide. I just don't want to be here. I feel so out of place. Some of you feel that way coming to church. I feel that way going into a gym. <laughs> but I do. Every time I walk into a gym, I sit there and I look at all these guys with these muscles and these things on these machines, and I look at myself and I think, what are they? they must laugh when I walk in this door, you know? Of course, I'm the one who needs to be there, but still. So... Do you ever feel just unimportant, like no one listened to you? A feeling of worthlessness, like, why do I bother speaking? Mothers say that all the time, you know. Um, do you ever hear that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me? That's a lie. That is such a lie. Names and name calling is the most destructive force around. 
People take years to get over verbal abuse and foolish name-calling. You talk to any counselor, when we begin to work with people, you'll find so much of their struggle was rooted in their self-image, which was imparted to them by foolish talking, by foolish name-calling, and even worse when it's from family and friends. But this morning I want to talk to you about a man. We're going to work through the book of Matthew as we talk about this man. We're going to turn to Matthew 1. Actually, I won't read those because those are pretty. We're going to start in Matthew 2 when we get to some verses. But even before this man was born, the rumors were flying. His mother could have been stoned. But a fiancé did not want her to be stoned, so he was going to privately divorce her. Until the Lord intervened and told him in a dream to take Mary to be his wife. He was not a wealthy family. Even when this man, Christ, was born, he was nobody would make room. He was, certainly was not a noble birth, which is really funny because both Mary and Joseph were direct descendants from David. They were royalty. But there was no royalty in the country at that point in time. Uh, he was born a Jew at the time when they basically were not a, they, they were people, but they had nothing to call of them. They were under Roman rule. The Romans had conquered the land. There was no such thing as royalty in that country. And obviously they were not of great wealth because nobody received them well when they child was born. <clears throat> Do you ever think about what it was like for Jesus growing up? I mean, he's out there playing with the kids. I don't know what you think about. I, I, I read a book years ago called The Jesus I Never Knew, and that book has so impacted my life about Jesus and who he was and how he lived. I can assure you that while he's out there playing in the ground, nobody was looking at him playing and saying, oh, there's the Son of God. Isn't he cute? He didn't grow up that way. And in fact, if anything, he was born under suspicion. It was, nobody knew who his father was. Joseph rescued Mary from a terrible situation. To be born out of wedlock in Jewish culture was a tremendous shame. Jesus chose to come in under those suspicions. You and I celebrate Christmas, you know, with all this pageantry and everything, but I can assure you at that point in time, there was no such thing. He's very young, and he has to flee the country. Look in uh, Matthew 2. Verse 13. When they had gone, when the Magi had actually left, I think it was the Magi, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up. He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
He has to flee in an early age. He flees to a foreign country. He lives in Egypt. Well, you know what it's like in the nations today, in Cambodia and all these other places, when they have to flee their country? Where do they go? They go to a refugee camp. They live in a refugee camp. If any of you have ever seen a refugee camp and seen what it's like to live in there, I don't know what it was like where Jesus fled, but he had to flee into Egypt, his family. Fled to go to Egypt, and he grew up in that type of a circumstances. It was not a noble thing to be a Jew in those days. They had no command of their own country. There was nothing spectacular about being Jewish. They were just simply a conquered people, pretty much at the will of the Roman Empire. Even when he comes back in verse uh, 22, same chapter, Verse 21, so he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. They were returning to the land. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. But even then he didn't get to go back to his own home. His family still had to flee. Almost like criminals living, you know, out of suspect and out of sight. And there's a little picture of how Jesus grew. The scriptures don't say a whole lot more about him until he begins his ministry. But even when he begins his ministry, there's very little indication that his family believed in his ministry, his brothers and his sisters. We're going to stay in Matthew, so flip over to Matthew 12, 20, 1246. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who who are my brothers? Pointing to the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sisters. There's nothing in scripture to indicate that his brothers appreciated his ministry during that time that he was alive. I mean, there is afterwards. James writes the book of James and obviously, you know, has placed his faith in Christ. But look at 1353. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown. He began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. And right in the question is the same thing that happens in the book of Acts when they look at the disciples. Because they notice that they were just unlearned, ignorant fishermen. Well, this is a, this is a slight. He said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? When then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. His hometown didn't receive him. They weren't happy with him at all. The very people he came to rescue. Look at um, 2337. 
He came to pour out his life for people. Look at his heart. Matthew 23, 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. The very people he came that he gave his life for rejected him. Do you think that he did not feel that rejection? He took on flesh and blood and humanity to experience what it was like for you and I. Literally, as we get, we're going to go a little further later down, and I'm going to show you some things that he goes through. But I'll quote Isaiah 53, 2 and 3 to you. It says he grew up. This is talking about Jesus and his ministry. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He did not look like Jim Caviezel. Okay? I mean, I don't know. Every movie you see about Jesus, you have some, you know, unbelievable picture. I think it was, uh, who did the earlier ones? Um, the older movies. But, you know, it says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The very people he came to rescue rejected his message. In fact, they mocked him, they ridiculed him, and continually looked for ways to make a fool out of him, always sending people to bait him and ask him questions in public to try to see if they could kind of trip him up. And finally, they crucified him. But I want to show you a little bit of what he went through with that crucifixion. But look at Matthew 27. We're going to be in Matthew 27 for the next three sets of verses. In Matthew 27, verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Well, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Here's the ver- Five days before this, the crowds are milling about, shouting Hosanna traditionally today. This Palm Sunday, five days before this, Jesus was a hero coming in on a donkey. The crowds are just exclaiming, Hosanna, come, you know, the son of David coming in and worshiping, praising. And somewhere within five days' time, 
I guess the crowd began to realize that Jesus didn't come to do for them what they had wanted him to come and do. They were hoping for a king that was going to come and overthrow the Roman rule, finally give them back their nation. And obviously in the ministry of Christ, in some ways in all his teachings, it was very obvious to them that that was not his purpose. But it didn't take long, five days. How many of you have been told one day by your boss you're the greatest thing in the world and the next day you are the scapegoat for everything that goes wrong? You know, people will praise you to your face and then turn around and write a letter and make you the scapegoat or the error or the mistake or whatever. Crowds are so finicky. That song, we are so prone to wander. But look at the hatred mounted in their hearts. Verse 23 says, Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Drop down to verse 27. This is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Verse 27, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Now, I want you to understand, put some Hollywood into this. The governor's soldiers are standing there And they took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They said, come on, we are going to have fun. Watch this. It was like a lynch mob. Watch this. This guy, they didn't know who he was. They had no animosity toward this man. They just had a job. They were told to go crucify him. But in the midst of wanting to crucify this man, they decided they were going to have fun. Did you ever see a crowd get together to mock? And they gathered them all, the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Here, you want to be king? Here's your throne. Here, let's put this on there. What do you think that crowd, they did it in front of all these soldiers. What do you think the soldiers are doing standing there? They're laughing. They're mocking. This is really funny. This is hysterical. That's how people get like that. And they're laughing. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, they said. Then they spit on him, took the staff, and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. Do you ever see what a crowd does even after that? They probably talked about it for hours. You know, making the jokes. You know, about what they did. And it doesn't stop there. They put him on a cross. Down to verse 38. Two robbers were crucified with him. Even in the crucifixion, they hung him as a thief. Just a petty old thief. Right between them. On his right and on his left. 
those who passed by, he's hanging on the cross, they hurled insults, insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusted God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him for her. He said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Why? Why does the God of the universe allow himself to be mocked, to be rejected? Why is mockery so painful? Because it prevents the very thing that we want more than anything else in our life, and it's to be loved and accepted for who we are. The, uh, the greatest desire of the heart is for people just to accept us for who we are, not to have to put on anything special to be approved of or to be pleased. Just somebody love me for who I am, accept me for who I am. Stop making me dance through hoops. Mockery prevents that goal of the heart. But look at his response. Look at Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. Verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Hanging on the cross, being insulted, being beat, and all he could do was put back forth and say, Father, forgive them. How is he able to do that? He is God. He suffered tremendous humiliation at the hands of the very people he created and the very people that he was dying for. He suffers humiliation and shame. Why? We're going to go to Hebrews and stay there as we finish up. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So but by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. He suffered for our benefit. He said, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy, you and I, are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. One of the most interesting things is that God is not ashamed of you. No matter what shame you have, he took that shame on the cross. He suffered shame. He suffered humiliation. 
So often we can talk about his physical pain on that cross, but he took all the shameful abuse and verbal abuse that you and I will ever face in our lives. And he took it on himself. That was also part of what was accomplished on that cross. He took that shame away, and he is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Drop down to verse 14. For the chil- Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, you and I. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He has gone through every amount of humiliation that you can imagine, and he did it so that he could be there for us. He loved us beyond everything. I don't understand or comprehend the fullness of the love of God for you and I. But what he went through and suffered and died, he did for you and I. And he took the things that are so most hurtful to us, our shame, away from us. He identified, you know, in his early childhood, he, like I went through the refugee camp and those things, but Scripture wants to identify with everything we've ever been through to show us that our shame can be gone and he can use us. I still find the most amazing thing when you look at the lineage of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Why? You know, the, the, the one part of the Bible, when you're having your devotion, you start to fall asleep because so-and-so begot so-and-so, and they begot so-and-so, and they begot so-and-so, and then we're all ready to fall asleep. It is amazing if you look at the lineage from Abraham to uh, Christ. There are five women mentioned in that lineage. Why? Every man that was born had something to do with a woman. But there are only five mentioned. Why does God go out of his way in the lineage of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 to mention five women? He mentions Tamar. Tamar was deprived and turned around and seduced her father-in-law to become pregnant to keep the promises. Rahab, who was a harlot. Ruth, who was a Moabitess, a Gentile, and unfit for the Jewish people. A dog, a Gentile dog and Bathsheba, and Mary. Five women are mentioned. Why does God go out of his way to mention those five women in Scripture, if not to identify with the fact that no matter what type of shame we carry, his grace is sufficient to take it all away. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to close there. Hebrews 4:14 4, 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We are such weak vessels. We struggle with so much with our self-image, with whether or not God can use our lives, with shame issues. Jesus took it all. But he wants us to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. When I go back to Jesus on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I have a boy in my 1718 study hall that every word out of his mouth is ridicule. He ridicules every kid in that class because of their color, because of their skin, because of their whatever. He, I, I, I'd like to hang him, but but I was doing this message and the Lord just struck my heart and said, Dave, he is like that because he is so filled with shame that is the only way he knows how to cope in this world. And he tries to get that one up and chip every chance he gets to ridicule people so that nobody will know how scared to death he is on the inside that people will see what he is really like. Our greatest fear is that people will see us for who we really are inside. We are so afraid of being discovered. God knows what we're like all the time. He knows all that we deal with. And he says, come boldly before my throne of grace that you might find help in time of need. Let's pray. Before we pray with heads bowed, eyes closed, I just want to give you an opportunity. I'm not here to embarrass you. I just want to give you an opportunity to talk to the Lord, to go to his throne of grace for whatever is on your heart. If it's the ability to forgive someone who has hurt you, the only way that we can do that is by seeing them as people in need. That's the only way Jesus could forgive. He saw them as people in need. He'd still died for them. Ask God for that grace to love as he loves us. I'm going to pause just for about 30 seconds to a minute and let you talk to the Lord. Father, thank you for who you are, for your goodness. Lord, you look down upon us in our need, in our weakness, and you loved us, and you died for us. Father, I just ask you for the grace to love others as you loved us. Thank you for people who love you, for a wonderful church. Lord, you are doing such a great work in people's lives here. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. 
in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed.